This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Museum and the very first of our 2019 Human Nature Lecture Series. My name is Sue Saxon, and I'm a creative producer here at the Australian Museum. But I'd like to begin by calling on Gadigal Elder Uncle Chika Madden to welcome you all to country. Thank you, Uncle Chika. Good, uh, thank you. Uh, good evening, folks. My name is Charles Madden, but known around the inner city of Sydney as Chika. Now, that's a nickname that I got many, many years ago going to Redfern Public School, which is now NCIE, the National Centre for Indigenous Excellence. Folks, I'm from Gadigal land, Aboriginal land. That's the land we're on at the moment. For many, many years, I've lived and worked around the city of Sydney. I've been involved with many different Aboriginal organisations over the years. I've been a director with the Aboriginal Medical Service at Redfern for over 40 years. Also a director with the Redfern Aboriginal Housing Company, Aboriginal Hostels Australia, and the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, where I am still a very active member. I've got to mention it, folks. Also a life member of the Redfern All Blacks Rugby League Football Club. <laughs> Thank you. Folks, for many, many years I've lived and worked around the city of Sydney. I'd like to take this opportunity this afternoon to extend a warm and sincere welcome to all of my Aboriginal brothers and sisters, non-Aboriginal brothers and sisters. Do we have any brothers and sisters here from the Torres Strait or further afar across the seas? Welcome. Welcome to Gadigal land. The Gadigal clan is one of 29 that makes up the Eora Nation. The Eora Nation is bordered by three distinctive landmarks. We have the Orksbury River to the north, the Peen to the west and the Georges River to the south. Those three rivers form the boundaries of the Eora Nation. Folks, if you've travelled across this great city of ours today, the state or this great country, welcome. Welcome to Gadigal land. Enjoy your stay. Have a safe and trouble-free trip home. Once again, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Enjoy the evening, folks. Thank you. Thank you, Uncle Chika. And welcome all to the first of what promises to be another very challenging and thought-provoking human nature series. This landmark lecture series, in collaboration with our five major university partners, brings academic leaders in the environmental humanities from around Australia and the world to the Australian Museum. As you may have seen upstairs in the fascinating Capturing Nature exhibition tonight, the Australian Museum's collection provides a record of the environmental and cultural histories and diversities of the Australian and Pacific regions. 
Together with its ongoing research, the museum informs and promotes understanding of some of the most pressing environmental and social challenges in our region, including the loss of biodiversity, a changing climate, and the assertion of cultural identity. So the past meets the future here at the Australian Museum, where our understanding is inspired by the research of our scientists and cultural specialists, by our exhibitions, and by events like this Human Nature Lecture Series, through which we strive to investigate and communicate the relationship between people, culture, and the natural environment. Tonight's lecture is a galvanizing launch of the series that stimulated, informed, and deepened our perspectives on environmental change in 2018. This year, our speakers explore different horizons, from the polar ice caps to the astronomy observatories and titanium dioxide mines of South Africa, to the Mekong River in Cambodia, and the forests of eastern Ecuador and southern Chile. But let's start at home and hear from Anth Professor Anthony Birch, or Tony, and who considers tonight the multi-layered strategic and altruistic relationships required to combat climate change. So please join me now in welcoming Dr. Anne Jamieson, who's the Deputy Director of the Writing and Society Research Centre in the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at Western University, to introduce Tony Birch to you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you very much. Um, it was an absolute pleasure um, and a privilege um, to be invited uh, today to in introduce Professor Tony Birch to you all this evening. And it's wonderful to see so many of you here um, in this lovely um, historic venue. On behalf of the multiple organizers of this event um, and also the many universities that have been involved, I would like to extend our collective appreciation to Professor Birch for um, giving us his time uh, this evening uh, and for kicking off this uh, lecture series. Professor Tony Birch is a multi-award winning author. He is a respected curator. He is a renowned community activist and he is a very humble uh, and someone with deep sincerity, a public um, intellectual. Um, I think we need more of them um, in today's society, um, certainly. He is also currently the inaugural recipient um, of the Dr. Bruce McGuinness Research Fellowship um, at Victoria University in Melbourne. Um, and his books include Shadowboxing, published in 2006, two short story collections, Father's Day um, and The Promise. His novel Blood, published in 2011, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award in 2012, and Ghost River won the 2016 Victorian um, Premier's Literary Award. In 2017, he became the first Indigenous writer to receive the prestigious Patrick White Literary um, Award. His research interests center on Aboriginal history, on climate change, and on Indigenous knowledge systems. And his work reminds all of us, um, I think, of the important and fruitful conversations that can and need to be had between the hard sciences and the humanities. Indeed, he is a brilliant advocate, um, I believe, of the liberal arts degree and the humanities more generally. He has stated that the humanities are the philosophical underpinnings of knowledge. And it is with his words and with that sentiment um, that I introduce Professor Tony Birch. Um, thank you very much. So we'll just get right into working. Um, firstly, thank you very much for that <clears throat> um, really warm invitation. Um, 
I want to thank the museum for inviting me up here um, to Sydney and also thank the organisational work of um, Tom Van Doren and the collaboration between Sydney University and um, University of Western Sydney. I, I feel um, humble and, and grateful to be here. Um, I also, of course, want to um, thank Uncle Chica for his wonderful and warm introduction and clearly to pay my respects to him and the Gadjul people. Um, we were talking, Chica and I, about um, the person who shares the office next door to me at Victoria University, a long-time friend of mine, Gary Foley, is an old troublemaker from Redfern, and uh, Chica was bemoaning the fact that Foley came down to Melbourne in 1973 and never came back. So uh, Melbourne's a good place to escape to when the police are chasing you. But, uh, um, <laughs> head south, head south. So, um, and I, I, I'd say that um, I'm not going to do this in a lazy fashion, but I am tonight going to um, speak conversationally. Um, I could deliver a formal lecture, I could deliver um, one of the many papers that I've published on this work, but the reason why I want to uh, deliver it in the way that I, that I shall is that I want it to be a, 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 an intimate and, and more of an informal conversation and certainly one that will encourage you to, to um, ask questions and have a discussion We'll have, um, make sure that we have time for that, but also that um, give you time to reflect, I think, on some of the people that I've been heavily influenced by who I will refer to in this conversation. Um, I always start with this slide, though, of the um, SEED, um, Indigenous Youth um, Climate Change Coalition. Um, often people will ask me questions, you know, what can we do for Aboriginal people or, or what can we do to, to save Aboriginal people, well, there's not much you, you can do to save us. We don't need saving. But if you ever want to um, literally support a group of young Indigenous people who are doing remarkable work to um, save the environment, save Indigenous country, and to work on behalf of the planet, um, SEED um, are a wonderful group of people. And quite literally, you can go onto their website and see what they're doing, in, including some um, important political actions that have taken place in the last week in the um, federal parliament building, and quite seriously as well, if you feel a need to, um, they're a group that you could give some financial support to because they they operate on a shoestring. They go out into um, regional and remote communities. They empower young Aboriginal people in mainland Australia to to be active around climate justice. So um, I want to make sure that um, I, I give you a sense of that value. Um, the second thing I want to say, and, and I want to start with a couple of things that we could actually end on. We could, we could make this lecture about 10 minutes long and there wouldn't be any need to do anything else because I want to make the most important points at the outset. Um, these group of kids that um, are in this photograph are a group of stu students, school students, who are at the time we were about 15 years of age. This is in 2014. So these, these are young adults now. They're 21 years of age. And I was very fortunate in 2013 and 14 to be invited to take part in a global project called Weather Stations. And the project was essentially um, based in Europe with a Southern Hemisphere outstation, which was um, um, this school that I work with at Footscray City College in Melbourne. The other four groups that I worked with were, were students who I worked with in Europe. So I, I spent time teaching kids in Dublin, in Berlin, in London, and in a school called HAL um, in Poland. And it struck me that working with these kids, I was thinking about that statement that we often make, 
which I think is a bit of a misnomer when we talk about we have to save the planet for our children and our grandchildren. Now, if you don't have children and grandchildren, you've, you've got to think of someone else, of course, a, a cousin or something. But it, it, I think it, it misses the point of, of the intelligence and the wisdom of young people. Because what I found in working with these kids across the globe and spending 18 months with them and then taking them to Berlin with some other people and we, we, we engaged with the Berlin Literature Festival in something called the Youth Climate Change Summit was that one of the things that we think about is that you know, I, we think that young people are naive. We think that young people might be idealised in, in a negative sense. And what these young people were talking about is, one, they understood the value of place as a collective. They, there were no dissenters in the sense that they thought that where they lived, the places they grew up on, whether it be the Baltic Sea, which was being poisoned, whether it be a, a paddock at the end of a public housing estate on the outskirts of Dublin that had been hammered by the global financial crisis, that they understood that their place mattered, that their place in, was entitled to survive, their place was entitled to be protected, and they were unanimous in their sense that they didn't want to see their place desecrated, they didn't want to see their places damaged. And what I thought then and, and what I think now is that, in fact, what these young children were expressing was not naivety, not idealism, but wisdom. And I've since thought about why is it that as we get older we might think we, we grow wise, and I think it's a very dubious claim when we consider some of our political leaders, but in fact that I think we lose wisdom. And what these kids taught me and the way they expressed their feelings about climate change was in a very wise manner. So that one of the things that I've been left with and one of the things that is a constant driver to my work is what happens to us. What happens when we become pragmatic, when we become realists? What do we lose in that, in that sense of who we are? And I think we could, we could do a lot worse than focus on what young people are saying about the planet because I think many of them are much wiser than many of us. The second point that I could make that we, we could leave and go home on is, is this. Um, there are a couple of people here who know this um, story and they will know the context that I've used it in. But I just want to, in a way, say how this frames everything that I've done or it's central to, I suppose, my sense of thinking around climate justice, around Indigenous knowledge, around Aboriginal protection of, of country and what we could do. So this story, um, The Lifting of the Sky, is a story from Wurundjeri country of the Greater Kulin Nation. It's a story many, many thousands of years old. So I'm going to move across so I can read it. You can read it, but I will read it. A long time ago there was no sky as there is now, for it lay flat upon the earth and covered it like a blanket. It rested so hard upon it that the people were not able to move and were in dire distress. At last Guruk the magpie managed to prop up one corner of it and some of the people were freed and enabled to come to his assistance. Between them they lifted the sky to where it is now. So one of the things that I started to think about when I was on this fellowship was to think about indigenous ecological knowledge or what might be called traditional ecological knowledge, which is um, a body of work, particularly in North America, which talks about the validity of indigenous ecological scientific knowledge, 
the need to have that knowledge recognised by Western science, but also, as I'll talk about in a moment, the problematics of, of how that knowledge might be shared. And what I found in the first two years of the fellowship is that I was, in a sense, writing in a very, what we might call adversarial way of trying to, in a way, say, you've got to recognise this knowledge. This is vital knowledge. It's important that science recognises it. There were two problems with that. Is that one is that, um, as I talked to Tom about before, while there have been historic problems between the relationships between Indigenous people globally and Indigenous ecological knowledge and its reception, or in some ways its um, what's called bio, bio sorry, piracy, the theft of this knowledge by Western science, is that I didn't even contemplate the, another factor, and that is that there are Aboriginal people in Australia, there are Indigenous people across the globe working very effectively with science, very effectively with other disciplines of the humanities and the sciences and doing it very well across the globe. So if I was going to make a claim about a need to be heard, about a need for our knowledge to be respected, um, I'd have to do a lot more work about seeing what was happening on the ground. And while there are historical legacies of very bad relationships and neglect of Aboriginal knowledge and the misappropriation of Aboriginal knowledge, one of the things that I found very quickly is that these remarkable projects that are taking place across the globe are ones that I needed to be more aware of and to pay more respect to. But the other thing that I started to think, and I think it's become central to my way of thinking, and why I think so much about how we can cooperate, how we can work together, is I love this story. Now, this is a story that we could give scientific fact to because what we know is that when Europeans arrive in what becomes Australia, Indigenous people who witness the use of smoke and fire by Europeans cannot believe the level of extravagance, that there is so much smoke in the air, that very early and around here, around Port Jackson, that the Gadjigal people when they witness the way that Europeans use fire to keep warm to cook, they think it's a very extravagant and wasteful use of fire. And in Wurundjeri country where I, where I live, where I come from, there's talk very early on by Wurundjeri people in the Greater Kulin Nation about what this smoke is doing in the air, the problem of this smoke in the air. It's a wasteful use of a technology. So we can make very strong arguments that this statement is one of those statements where you say, well, here's an example of a warning of what um, excessive carbon could do, the excessive use of fossil fuels. But in a, in a way, to me, that's a sort of given. I don't want to have to argue that because, to me, it's fairly obvious. What I found more profound in this is the notion of what happens here. So Guruk the magpie has to save people who would otherwise die. But as soon as he saves one of those people, it is their obligation to help him to save the others. And I think this central notion of Indigenous philosophy of place, Indigenous philosophy of collective support, is what is more important to me. And that is the obligation that we have to others, the obligation that we have to, to save and protect others, and of course, relative to that, then what is the objective and what is the obligation of us who have been assisted by others? So it's in a way the driving force of, of, my, of my work. The other thing that is important about this is the whole notion of what we might call indigenous philosophy. Now, 
one of the things that you'll see, as I mention other people, I'm not here suggesting that the knowledge that Aboriginal people have is exclusive or that we think of place, we think of the value of the environment in ways that non-Aboriginal people don't. But there is a clear distinction. If I were to go into the northern suburbs of Melbourne in very poor public housing estates and talk to Aboriginal kids there, I don't have to convince them of the importance of protection of country. Those kids could have limited formal education. Those kids could be marginalised for the education system. Those kids could be in a, de a, a youth detention centre where I do some teaching. But if I say to them, what's the importance of place to your mob, to your people, they have no doubt about that. It's not something I have to convince them of. And yet when I've read great teachers and great philosophers of what we call the Western philosophy, I'm intrigued to the extent to which people are individualised or exceptions, and sometimes in a very negative way. People may know the work of Rachel Carson, I'm sure many of you do. Think about how Rachel Carson was marginalised, to think that Rachel Carson was regarded as suspect because she wasn't married. But Rachel Carson wasn't a man, so she couldn't have the knowledge that men had, the way that she was ridiculed. You find particularly women who are working in what we might call philosophical ecologies are often seen as a bit mad. Now, you can be mad in a good way, but in a very negative way. So what I'm trying to argue for is the notion of our attachment to place and the value of place is something in my community and in Aboriginal communities that is understood as a collective idea, even if it's not articulated by everyone in that way. But what we're doing in a country like Australia today is that people are still having to argue for the environment, still having to argue for the value of protection of country. And if we don't think that's the case, look at what happened on television last night when Scott Morrison was interviewed by Lee Sales. His response to what he's going to do in relationship to, to carbon, you would have thought that he was in fact talking about a football match. The way that he said, we're gonna, we're gonna do it in a can and we're gonna meet it and beat it. And it was like a sort of heroic act. This is not the way to talk about the protection of country. So the other issue, and I suppose the one that has stuck with me, is about climate justice and the protection of country. And one of the things that I learned very early on, and this is about language, how do we talk about country? How do we talk about climate? And what I found very early, again, to my naivety, is that you don't go out and talk to Aboriginal people what are you going to do about climate change or what are we going to do about climate change? Aboriginal people understand when you talk about country, when you talk about protection of country, when you talk about justice, they are much more legitimate terms and also they go to the heart of the way we think about country in a holistic way. Again, when we think about climate change and climate change solutions in mainstream, it's as if it's, it's a, a compartmentalised idea, a compartmentalised problem or a compartmentalised solution that we, we might offer, rather than regard climate or regard the environment as something which is we, we need to understand in a much more holistic way. So just a couple of things that I think you will all know, and this is to think about climate change and injustice. So um, people know that you know, the term we're all in the same boat, and this has been ridiculed over recent years, both as it's been put by humanities scholars and, and politicians, well, the first thing we need to do if we're going to work cooperatively is to realise, well, we're not all in the same boat. That there are people who have committed 
gross abuses against the environment. Um, Western consumption has a very negative impact on the way that climate will change in the future. There are many, many communities, many indigenous communities and poorer communities worldwide who contribute nothing or very little in the way of a carbon footprint, who have already suffered because of environmental degradation to their land, whether it be because of dispossession or the misuse of their land by, by corporations or by colonial forces such as agriculture. So we have to understand that and we have to accept that. This is not a struggle that we think we're all in it together. This is a struggle where people have to take particular responsibilities. Now it's interesting, when I talk to a room full of mixed crowd, I always, if we're going to effectively as a collective confront climate injustice, I say we all have to give something up. Now you imagine when there's Aboriginal people in the room say, you're kidding aren't you? What's, what else do we have to give up? And what I say to them is, okay, maybe we, what I'd say, why don't we just park our mistrust to one side? Why don't we park our wariness to one side? And why don't we, when these white fellows come into the room and say, we want to work with you, we want to cooperate with you, why don't we say, okay, we'll, we'll hear what they've got to say. And then if we're, we think, no, we don't, this is a bit of humbug, we can say, no, we're not interested. But to say to Aboriginal people, let's hear what people have to say. Now, again, I'm being a bit patronising because we know that Aboriginal people are doing that all, all the time. That there are Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people working on the ground effectively together because Aboriginal communities have made that decision. Regardless of what has happened, we're going to work with these people because it gives us each an opportunity to work forward in the future. But it can only begin from a sense of understanding the injustices that have occurred the other thing, of course, is to think about what I was talking about in relationship to whole, holistic understanding of country. This is a, a wonderful statement from an essay by Alan Van Nerven, who's a, a young Aboriginal woman, both a novelist, poet and essayist. And when you think about, again, the impact of climate, you cannot isolate something around weather. You have to think about every aspect of an Aboriginal person's life. One of the things that we know, one of the things that we know, if you an Aboriginal person living in a community and your community is affected by a dramatic weather event, you're already living in a community which is more likely to have um, substandard utilities such as sewage and running water. And if you're living in a community where you already have substandard facilities, it is far less likely that when the recovery teams come in, when work is done to repair damage, that your community <coughs> will get repairs even to the state that it was in beforehand. So the more marginalised, the more deprived the community is, the more likely that community will end up more deprived after a dramatic weather event. And what we know in Australia and globally, <coughs> sorry, is that this is affecting Aboriginal people more and more. Sorry, it's all frame. Okay, so thinking about Caring for country constitutes something far greater than a person or, or a group of people having a job and physically managing a geographic area by dealing with a problem created by weeds and feral animals. Caring for country encompasses being spiritually bound to country through intimate connections with ancestors being still present in the land and waters. So imagine the problem here that we have. So Aboriginal people possess knowledge that we know is invaluable to protecting the environment. And there are many 
many um, examples that we could give, but we don't have time to. We also know that the ability to maintain that knowledge in relationship to your kinship obligations to other people, in relationship to your kinship obligations to non-human species, in relationship to how your community operates in a holistic manner, is, is predicated on that knowledge being both protected and that knowledge being accessed with proper protocols. So if we think about the notion of Aboriginal knowledge and its ability to inform the greater community or society as to how we might deal with issues like climate change, there's so much at stake for Aboriginal people to even engage in that relationship. And if proper protocols and ethics are not rigidly kept in place, the likelihood of that knowledge being abused, misappropriated, or what's called cherry-picking is enhanced. And for people here who are, again, working with Aboriginal people or Aboriginal people working with whitefellas, it's so important that we get this right because if we don't get it right, it's very difficult to grow that relationship. And this is one of the, the, the strongest apprehension when I'm talking to Aboriginal people in Victoria, the real apprehension is around this issue, again, of trust. Who can we trust? How can we build trust? And how do we know how people are going to utilise the knowledge that we have? So, Leanne Simpson, who's a, a really important figure in my work, who's a First Nations scholar in Canada or Turtle Island, one of the things that Leanne Simpson writes about is that very point. What's happened to First Nations communities and in, in places like Turtle Island, is that often they find that the particularities of knowledge, so women's knowledge, men's knowledge, um, it can show up in places where it simply shouldn't be after a conversation, after an engagement with a, a non-Aboriginal scientist. And it not only destroys those relationships, the knowledge that goes out of that community, it's the same as the desecration of a very important sacred site. It's the same as the desecration of people's relationship to country. So there, again, there's so much at stake here. Now, the other two things I want to end on this section is, is that the other thing that we have to come to terms with is what we call failure. Now, people might see failure itself as a, as a, as a negative. So when I worked as a historian, I used to do a lot of work in the Western District of Victoria about the refusal to recognise colonial histories, including violence against Aboriginal people. Many of the farmers that I talked to were in fact weren't farmers. They lived on land that had once been farmed but had completely failed as agricultural land. They lived on land that had been part of soldier settlement blocks that had failed because the land was not suitable for European agricultural farming but they still called themselves farmers. And if they talked about the failure of their farm, they did it in whispers. <clears throat> now, I understand that. I understand that sense of someone's humiliation. But unless we understand that the colonial project, that aspects of colonialism, not only about the invasion and desecration of Aboriginal land and people, but the so-called science and knowledge that replaced it has been unsuitable to many landscapes, it is very difficult, again, to move forward in a trustful way. 
So people have to admit that the colonial project in many parts of Australia is a project of failure. And what we need are new ways of thinking about how we engage with landscape and country. The other person who's so important on this is uh, one of my heroes who has since passed, the wonderful um, Deborah Bird Rose, who I think spoke here last year, who makes a similar point. Any conversion we humans may wish to start up concerning the living world, our place in it and our responsibility toward it must bear the knowledge of the terrible harm we have done and continue to do. So again, we cannot build these relationships unless there is a recognition of what has been done and what has been done that is wrong. And to accept that, not as a, simply a criticism, as a challenge to do something different. So the ethics of that, the potential maturity of that, I actually think are invaluable, which will allow us to start these new relationships. So I want to talk a little bit about the damage of denialism and then just think about what we could do or what we should be doing. So <clears throat> there's the usual suspects. <clears throat> Donald Trump, this is during an interview, um, he was asked, who's going to protect the environment? Trump said, we'll be fine with the environment, we can leave a little bit, but you can't destroy business. Now, he's a soft target. I know, <laughs> but he's not as soft as this bloke. So, so people may remember back to the climate change argument is absolute crap. Now again, we could be dismissive of, of this and you think, well, Tony, you're doing that because you put him there in his togs. Um, it is interesting that he made this statement when I was working in Europe and when I was in Berlin, people could not believe that a political leader in Australia would say such a thing and what it said about our level of intelligence and the damage it does to your relationships. But I'm actually going to say something a bit different. I think we shouldn't get fixated on the extreme statements that people like Trump and Abbott make and we should think more about what it does to our thinking to engage with denialism and what it does to our thinking <coughs> in the way we use language. So a very influential figure on my work is the American philosopher Elizabeth Minich. Here she talks about the damage of the denial of thinking through climate change denialism. Power lies in the ability not to hear what is being said, not to experience the consequences of one's own actions, but rather to go one's own self-centric and insulated way. And what Elizabeth Minich says about climate change denialists, denialists around colonial violence, all forms of denial around by so-called leadership, political leadership, it is, it's, its impetus is to shut down thinking. See, I don't know whether Tony Abbott believes in climate change or not, and I don't think that's the issue. Strategically, the issue is to create a climate of fear, to create a climate of uncertainty which closes down our thinking, which doesn't promote us to think about the consequences of these issues. What Minich, Minich offers in opposition to that is what she calls teaching thinking. Thinking is neither coerced nor cohesive. It's explanatory, suggestive, emerging as a more thoughtful people who will continue to seek meaningful lives. And what Minich says she values thinking to the extent that if we promote it, if we set up environments where people are encouraged to, to develop ideas, that 
generally most people will make the right decisions, they will make good decisions. And I think the greatest damage that climate denialists do to us is that they inhibit our sense to gather collectively and to act and think collectively. So a couple more things that I want to talk about. One is how we, what, how we speak when we speak about country. And this is a wonderful map. Yeah, people think the European discovery that um, Greater Port Phillip was Aboriginal country. This is a very early 20th century map where um, the boundaries of Aboriginal nations were in fact recognised even by some colonialists. So this is your premier. I care more about people. When asked why she didn't make the trip to the site of the fish kill on the Darling River, she said, of course I care about fish, but to be honest, I care more about people. Now, again, we could be dismissive of that, but I want people to think about what is it that would bring someone to use this language as opposed to this language. If shorebirds disappear, a whole aspect of our imagination and spiritual wealth also disappears. The birds carry our imagination, and if they die, so does our imagination. This is by a wonderful woman, Mimi MacDonald, who unfortunately also passed away late last year, a novelist. Now, as much as it might seem like a, um, a grand attempt at change, what I started with tonight with that discussion of Guruk is to say, regarding climate change, there are two time frames, minimum. One there is what is the urgency of now. We need to act now. We need to act now in Australia. We need to act now in the Pacific. We need to act globally now to stop the devastation that could occur. I have no doubt about that. But what I also believe is that we need generational change in our thinking. So when Mimi MacDonald talks here about imagination and spiritual wealth, that's something that we need to walk, work together to accept as a collective, as a society. The way that Aboriginal people wouldn't doubt that. It mightn't be in the terms that we would talk about, but explained about what Mimi is interested in, we as Aboriginal people wouldn't doubt the validity of that. And until, as a society, we don't doubt the validity of that and understand that as a much more important and profound statement in relationship to a statement by a politician, we won't live in a way that gives equality to non-human species and the planet. Imagine that these are the lawyers for the Adani Corporation who are trying to stop the Wangan and Jangalingu people from protecting their country. And people would have seen this in the press. Like a well-trained police dog, our litigators know when to sit and shake and when it's time to bite. I mean, it's outrageous that educated people in a country like Australia would use that language against people who are doing nothing more than trying to save their country. The indignity of that, the, the vandalism of that sort of language sh should cause social outrage at a scale that we don't listen, we don't hear. I know there was some negative press of this, but most people just move on. And when you think about what is being said here in relationship to protecting your country, if we allow statements like this to be, to be made, if we allow statements like this to go unchecked, 
We are not where we need to be philosophically as a society. Think about that in opposition to Virginia Robinson, an elder who's fighting for the protection of the Murray-Darling Basin. Our total animals are dead. Their bones are everywhere. So who does she care more about? Fish or people? She doesn't differentiate between fish and people, animals and people, because this Aboriginal elder, this wonderful woman, sees the interconnection as absolutely vital to the coexistence and survival of human and non-human and, and, and country. Until we understand that we cannot, we cannot think of ourselves as superior to fish, or more important than fish, we have no ability or we have a very limited ability to enact the change that we need to make. Or Darren Perry, who's engaged in this also Aboriginal man, we're sovereign First Nations and we've been managers of our water resources within our traditional country for many thousands of generations. So it goes without saying we should be partners, not stakeholders in the water management in this country. So if people like Virginia Robinson and Darren Perry are not centrally engaged in any mechanism to save that river, the river will not be saved. Because if you don't have the attitude that they have, you are not equipped to do the work that needs to be done. So, let's finish up with a question. And the question is put by Jedediah Purdy. What kind of world to make together should be taken as a challenge to democracy? The test of whether citizens can form the kind of democracy. This question, the question of what kind of world to make, a democracy that cannot do this will have marked itself as inadequate to the most basic problems. So if we don't have a genuine sense of inclusion and a democratic value system and a truly democratic value system that incorporates the equity of voices, and this is from his book After Nature, there is no ability that we will stop climate change. We will not stop it by geoengineering. We will not stop it by some carbon offset plan that um, Scott Morrison talks about, or the Labor Party's continuing support of the Adani coal mine. We will not stop it unless we have a genuinely democratic outlook on how we engage with the planet. And again, to Debbie, the challenge here then is to be open, to hold oneself available to others. One takes risks and becomes vulnerable. That's a wonderful, wonderful statement. But this is also a fertile stance. One's own ground can become destabilised. In open dialogue, one holds oneself available to be surprised, to be challenged and changed. So the point here is obvious. One of the things I know about Deborah Bird Rose is that she spent 30 years or more with Aboriginal people and built not only a trustful relationship but a lifelong relationship of brotherhood and sisterhood. And what someone like Deborah Bird Rose would have had to go through is to accept those challenges of possible mistrust, possible suspicion, the possibility of Aboriginal people thinking, what does this academic want? What does this woman want? And Deborah Bird Rose seeing that as the necessary challenge that she had to engage with. So for all of us, all of us, when we want to do the hard work of working together, the first thing is to know it is hard work. We are going to get knockbacks. We are going to face difficulties. I'll say something I'm 
a closing slide. I worked with a group of Aboriginal elders in Melbourne around climate justice. These were all people who were stolen generations people. None of them had lived on their own country. They were all taken from their country as children and now in their 60s and 70s. They were working in a suburban community centre in the west of Melbourne. Our objective was to do writing workshops with these wonderful people to talk about country that they loved and missed or the country they'd moved to. And then we said, and then what we're going to do next is that in the other room there's a group of old Maltese women because this is the western suburbs of Melbourne. There's some Italian women. There's some Italian blokes playing bocce and we want to bring you all together and talk about your love of country. And they were so excited. I used to go in on a Tuesday. On a Monday night I watched a Four Corners program of the Dondale Torture of Indigenous Youth. I go into that room the next morning. Those people are just devastated. They have family experiences of imprisonment, incarceration. What ability would I have to say to those people, let's go and talk to those women in the next room? They were so gutted. So every time there's an external force of racism that impacts on Aboriginal people or other people, it's such a, a knock to your system. And we have to know when we're trying to work together, we have to work against those forces and it is going to be and is a very difficult challenge. I want to, I'm just going to finish with this man. Here's, a, here's another one of my heroes, Dwayne Donald. If you have the time, go on to Vimeo and find a lecture on what terms can we speak. It's a 45-minute lecture he gave as a First Nations scholar from Canada. He says, decolonisation can only occur when we face each other across these historic divides. When we deconstruct the past we share and begin to imagine a different relationship, ethical and respectful. So what Dwayne Donald is saying and what he says in this lecture is that we in this room are all the products of colonialism. Whether we've benefited from it or whether we've suffered because of it. We are all the products of colonialism. Whether you have families that have been in this country for time immemorial, Aboriginal families, whether you have First Fleet ancestors or whether you came last week. And I don't mean beneficiaries. I'm not one who subscribes to the idea that everyone is equally a beneficiary of colonial violence. You would hardly put that to a refugee who just arrived in the country. But we are all the product of colonialism. And what Dwayne Donald says, if we continue to, if we are inhibited from working together, if we don't have the conversations that are necessary to have, we are fulfilling the colonial fantasy of the extermination of Aboriginal people or at the least the total marginalisation and the separation of people into white colonial society, indigenous society. So in other words, what Dwayne Donald says, the challenge that we face and the productive challenge we face is to talk to each other, to find ways to talk, to find ways to cooperate, to find ways to work together because then what we will have done, we will have broken that nexus. We are the ones and the ones who have come before us and will come after who have the potential to change the society, to change that situation that we were born into. Now, I know that's a big challenge, but I think it's one that we can all be invigorated by. When I started this fellowship, I, I was so depressed about what's happening. I've probably looked at those photos of Tony Abbott too often, I don't know. <laughs> but, but what I've found 
in the five years that I've been doing the project is that there are people doing remarkable work and I feel very invigorated by that and I hope that people in this room, and again I, I don't want to patronise anyone because I'm sure that there are people in this room doing remarkable work, you need to continue to do it and please make others aware of what's happening on the ground because sometimes the only picture we see are those you know, nightly headlines. If you're doing stuff at a local level around climate justice and climate change, try and find ways to get that information more widely disseminated. So thank you very much. That was um, indeed very invigorating, um, your approach to climate justice and issues around climate change are very hopeful actually um, in a time when it often feels that we're sleepwalking um, over the edge of a cliff. Um, so thank you for that, um, for your conversation um, this evening. Um, it's up to me now and a couple of... Um, people on, on the sides with microphones to um, open, uh, open the, the conversation up to our audience. Um, Professor Birch has kindly agreed to take some questions. Um, so if you sort of raise your hands, wave around, um, the microphone will reach you. Yes. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for that. I'm just wondering, what do you think are some of the best examples you've seen or heard of where indigenous ecological knowledge is yeah. helping current management of yeah. that environment? Um, look, and I know I... It's almost like the obvious here, but I've done a lot of work with Bruce Pascoe, and if people know Bruce's work um, from his book, Dark Emu. Now that book, its afterlife probably answers your question more fully because that book is about what early colonialists missed or what they wrote about and then didn't fulfil or didn't in a sense recognise. What I think is one of the great examples of this in a very contemporary setting is the seed bank project that Bruce has been involved in. So one of the things that we know with, with drought and whether you know, the current drought system, how much it's climate change, how much it's a historical event, I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but one of the things that Bruce's work has done is that if you look at the way the indigenous seed is applied to soils, you're talking about seed that doesn't need the amount of water that introduced agriculture needs. The systems that Bruce and others use to, to both plant that seed and then to harvest it has shown remarkable outcomes. So that it's a very strong local example of the way that, that plant sources work. Now that's a global phenomenon. Um, the First Nations um, scholar in America, Winona LeDuc, um, people may have heard of, she tells a remarkable story about the Pawnee and the seed bank that they took from where they had lived to, in Nebraska. They were shipped or pushed off to uh, Oklahoma their seeds did not take to that soil and their seed bank over many decades reduced dramatically. What happened was that the community that they'd been um, dispossessed of, the land they'd been dispossessed of, current day settler farmers said, bring your seeds back here and we will plant them here. Now it was one of those great exercises where she, was, she talks about how those First Nations people, that was something of a big risk for them. Yeah, why would we take our seeds back to this land that was stolen from us and is now occupied by these settler communities? They made a decision that they had to work on behalf of the seed. The seed was more important than their own mistrust. The seed went back to Nebraska and it flourished. And she makes this remarkable comment, she says, seed has a memory. 
Seed knows where it came from, the ground. So just in, in regard to agriculture, one of the, I think, the global examples would be the use of agriculture in an indigenous way, not just the technologies, but the actual plants that are, that are utilised. One that I was reading on my way here is about in First Nations community in parts of North, North America, when the fishing of salmon and the returning of the salmon bones to the water, it actually produces nitrogen, which assists the salmon to increase or assist the fertility of salmon for the next season. When Europeans saw the success of that, what's happening now, scientists are actually using salmon bones to replenish waterways, which you'd seen the loss of salmon. So there are many examples, there are, there are only two. The, probably the other, again, it requires goodwill and a trustful relationship to get that to happen. Thank you, Tony. I just wanted to ask you about your view on the role of fiction. I think yeah. um, we have so many facts, yeah. and fiction is so powerful, and there's an uh, interesting tradition in North American in, uh, First Nation writers, yeah. indigenous science fiction, as well as amazing novelists, Aboriginal novelists here. So how do you see the role of fiction? in? Well, it's interesting because if you take those two, take fiction as a, you know, a, I was going to say that's, that's actually a non-fiction book. Um, I write fiction, so I write novels and short stories. One of the, the um, issues that have come out in, in, in sort of literary criticism is that more people should be writing about climate change. You know, we all should be, because it's, it's the issue. Um, one of the problems with that is that people think, well, you can just shift into this. There's a genre called cli-fi. I don't know if you've heard of it. James Bradley in Sydney, he's a, he, his book um, was, was very good around this. But, People need to understand that you, you can't simply move into a genre or an issue-based um, work of fiction unless you really are embedded in it in a way that allows you to produce good work. So I haven't done any what we might call fiction around climate change, although my novel Ghost River does look at the desecration of the, the Birrarung Yarra River um, 1970 through the eyes of two, two very poor boys. But the point being is that I think that it's a really important genre to be addressing these issues, but it's got to be done well, and I think it's it's a false claim to say people should be pushed into it. The other issue around fiction, but I'll get I'll get to your more specific point, is that I actually have maybe a, as a sort of a, a someone who still still unfortunately believes in the value of humanism. I actually think that if you're reading fiction, and I think fiction is very powerful, if you're writing a book about the value of relationships, the value of the community, I don't think necessarily that you have to be writing about climate change to, for people to understand the value of, of community through that. But the, I think the more specific point here is a relationship between fiction and what we might call indigenous storytelling. So that they, there's a great crossover here and one of the, one of the problems with that is that you know, that story of Guruk the Magpie is told as a parable. And people, Western science, yeah, that was in a book about Aboriginal myths and legends. So you can read Aboriginal stories and books of myth and legend that you, could, you can see have important ecological knowledge in a philosophical sense, if not a physical science sense. Aboriginal knowledge has always been dismissed because of that. Okay, that's a story, but it's just a story. And Alexis Wright, my friend, who has certainly written in this area, her wonderful essay she did in 2016 for Mianjin around story, is that our stories are essentially about who we are as a, you know, holistically. So any time you look at whether it be a fiction work in a book or ab Aboriginal or Indigenous storytelling, what we need to understand is what else is embedded in that work. 
And what else is embedded in that work is essential issues around science, essential issues for me, more importantly now, around philosophy. Now, I wouldn't say that they are not also important tropes in fiction generally, but they're not given that credibility. Although it is interesting as a sort of a, an aside to this, you know, it's, not a, it, it's not surprising that Western fiction books that romanticise the colonial frontier are often people's basis for understanding history. So people have grown up and say, what do you know about this country? I read such and such a book. You know, Seven Little Australians, that's where I got my history from. So when Western knowledge has utilised fiction to legitimate something like colonialism, it's not so much as a problem when Aboriginal people tell stories. So there's a, there's a, there's a disconnection there. We'll take one more. There's a question. Oh, OK, the question there. Hi, um, thank you very much. I'm a park me. Oh, yeah. sorry, uh, sorry. That's right. Up the light. Um, I'm a Pākehā New Zealander who's been here only 11 years, so I don't have the deepest understanding of, it, of how Australians think, as most people in this room will. But it strikes me that um, there's a growing desire on the part of non-Indigenous Australians to progress towards reconciliation, as Aboriginal people are asking for. And But I do know there's a growing desire for climate change to be activated or environmental degradation. So I wondered what your thoughts were in your experience of where you had seen those two things coming together. Because it yeah. just seems to me it's framing for the zeitgeist now. Um, it's interesting, and I'll preface this with a, a closing remark. One of the um, problems of, of giving this talk is, one, time limitation, and I always wanting to do more than I should be doing. So it, it gets a bit messy. Um, it is interesting that in the, you, know, you think this PowerPoint is deaf by PowerPoint. It was bigger than this. <laughs> um, it, it is that I'd usually take two hours and just bore the shit out of everyone. But <laughs> I did have a slide up about the constitutional recognition issue, which goes to the heart of the issue of reconciliation. Now, I should be honest here and say that I've written about constitutional recognition, the bogus notion of a treaty in the sense of how it's framed by the Commonwealth and issues like reconciliation in a fairly critical way. So in Victoria, and people may or may not know this history because history is lost so quickly, the only reason the treaty got on the agenda at the, with the Uluru Statement is because we in Victoria demanded the treaty be discussed in a real meaningful way. So when Stan Grant, and I love Stan Grant, was brought to Melbourne by the constitutional um, convention group, he came to a community meeting to talk to us about why we should support constitutional recognition and there were t-shirts and badges and we said no, we don't want to talk about constitutional recognition, we want to talk about treaty in a real meaningful way and if you want to talk about that Sam, please stay and facilitate that and if you don't want to talk about that you can have a free couple of days in Melbourne. So Stan to his credit said okay we'll talk about treaty. And it was the driving of that discussion from Victoria that got that issue onto a national agenda. So I need to sort of say where I'm at with that. So I'm very, I'm very suspicious of hollow symbolic gestures. But there's something in why I put it up is to be honest. What I would say about something like constitutional reform is to say this. It might seem odd. It's not whether it's a good or a bad thing. It's what sort of society does it land in? 
And it goes to the heart of the issue that why I'm interested in Elizabeth Minich. She wants us to think. So if someone says to me, here's this statement from the heart, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, or here's a, a framework for constitutional recognition. And what we want now is the Australian society to have time to think about it, to discuss it, to get have all those difficult discussions, and if it takes a long time, in European sense, let's take a long time. And what people would realise with the constitutional recognition um, program, it was on a timetable of which we have to get to an end point soon that we want to get there. So my view would be to say, you know, reconciliation? I'm not against reconciliation because I could say there's a man called John Green who was the manager of Corran Dirk Reserve in the 1880s. He was a great friend of an Aboriginal man called William Barrack who was a resident there. When the Aboriginal community of Corran Dirk were sick and tired of not being paid a proper, proper wage, when they're sick and tired of being treated like children and there was a Royal Commission, John Green, a Presbyterian minister from Scotland, stood up in the Parliament of Victoria at the Royal Commission and said, these men are my brothers. And there was an audible gasp in the room because a white man had just said, these Aboriginal men are my brothers, and he said they must be treated justly. And he was sacked because of that. He was sacked because of his honesty and his bravery. That's reconciliation in action. So we should all say reconciliation in practice occurs and has occurred historically in Australia many, many times. But as a government policy, we need to say, well, what sort of society does it land in? And to be honest, if someone said to me, is Scott Morrison committed to a genuine sense of reconciliation? Is Bill Shorten committed to I'd say no. So I don't think, I don't think white Australia, or I don't think the country is ready to deal with reconciliation in a full and proper way, and if we are to do that, we need to take a long time to, to think about it and discuss it. And if that take, I would rather that take a decade and get it right and be really honest with each other than try and make it a bureaucratic exercise. And I, I think that's the problem with a lot of these um, symbolic acts, that they don't have any basis, and they're sort of move on acts. We, we do it and then we move on. Can I, I guess I was just looking at discussions around dealing with the environmental degradation and climate change as a way of enabling Australians to have the very conversation mm. you're talking about yeah. rather than it be just a government. Yeah, sorry, thing. sorry, you're right, I'm sorry, I missed that point. And, and that, you, you do, sorry, that, you, that is really interesting because what I think you're saying there, it's about, imagine if, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people have the experience of sharing ideas and if part of that sharing ideas they fulfil you know, the protection of a wetland or they work together to, to, to genuinely save a river. Clearly that experience of both trust and outcome would equip both of those communities better to then think about. So you're, you're right, exactly. It's about socialisation is much more important than being some, having something handed down to you. Okay, well, I think it's left up to me now. Um, I hope you will join me in thanking once again Professor Tony Birch for his passion, his enthusiasm. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.